0: Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the Anne Case bonus episode. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, an Alpha Chat short edition where we present those parts of my long conversation with economist Anne Case that we couldn't squeeze into our initial episode with her. We encourage you to listen to that conversation first, but On this episode, we talk about Anne's experience dealing with the bloggers and commentators who react to her work as sometimes their contributions are constructive and sometimes very much not. We also talk about her background doing research in South Africa, how that experience shaped her approach to health economics, and also why height turns out to be such a useful variable in her research. Here it is. I have a I have a question about something that I suspect you might have changed your mind on, but I don't know, so I'm just okay. going to ask you about it, sure. all right? When I was doing the research for this interview, I came across a quote of yours about, like, blogs and the media as yeah. mechanisms for instant feedback, mm-hmm. all right? Here's what you said. You said, in a peer-reviewed paper, there's a referee. There's an arbiter of who's going to say this makes sense, this doesn't. But with a blog, the blogger always has the last word. And if this is all people shooting from the hip, I don't think that's any way to move science forward, to move the research forward, unquote. But you, you have now engaged with a lot of bloggers uh, in the aftermath of the publication of your work. You do a lot of media. You take the time to talk to people like me. It seems like now you're you're embracing the process.
1: Not entirely.
0: No? Uh, No, uh, I
1: have to say, and I want to set the record straight on one thing from somebody's blog, which is the Brookings papers are refereed. All right, so one of the things about blogs is people can write anything and oftentimes do, right? So it becomes a very chaotic discussion oftentimes. And for me personally, I don't do well in a chaotic setting. I do Mm -hmm. much better talking to you like this than I do trying to read and respond to tweets or blogs.
0: Yeah, you're right. This one was refereed. Yeah. (laughs) And some people said it wasn't wrong.
1: Yeah. So I'll have to say I, I, I think it is still very easy for a blogger to call the shots on what's what they're going to uh, talk about or what they're going to actually entertain. And I'm not very good with snarky either. <laughs> so, you know, I'm just, I'm not that kind of academic. Fair. So
0: Here, Here's what I would say in defense of some of my bloggy comrades, which is that you sort of get a couple of benefits. One is the immediate amplification of the work itself. It gets spread quite quickly a lot of us who blog were pitched this paper before it went out by Brookings, for instance, right? It gets out there. The second thing is that it speeds up the time in which we discover where the points of friction are, where people disagree with each other. Um, And we end up learning a lot about both the way that economics gets done, but also the areas where we disagree. You mm-hmm. know, uh, I don't mean you and I disagree. Yeah. I just mean yeah. the areas where people disagree. So the the questions on that PNAS paper in 2015 about the trends with men and women smoking that was really enlightening to me. I, I was happy that that was out there, and then we learned pretty quickly. Where those points of disagreements were, whereas if those disagreements had only taken place in like the academic peer review process, it would have taken forever, and some things we just would have never gotten to. You mm-hmm. know,
1: oh, that's fair enough. But but I, <laughs> I, I that is fair enough. But bloggers oftentimes write things and they haven't read the paper. True. Right, and then they're spreading it to the people who are reading the blogs, and so there's a lot of misinformation out there as well.
0: A lot of leakage. Um,
1: a lot, yeah. I guess you could call it leakage. I would have called it polluting. Yes,
0: um, <laughs> that, that's a better that's a better uh, way to put it.
1: And saying, "Well, why didn't they think of? Are they so stupid they couldn't think of X?" Which, of course, you know, doesn't. Of course, matter. you thought of it. Yes, yeah. yeah. And it's on page three. Yeah. <laughs> so, I find that frustrating, yeah. and it's it doesn't match my personality very well. I'm kind of a quiet, academic, and yeah.
0: In our closing minutes, can can we talk a little bit about your background? Yeah, you've been a health economist for a very long time. It's clear in your papers that you will sometimes uh, trample onto the grounds of like sociologists. Yeah doctors, epidemiologists, that kind of thing. Uh, was that something that was formative for you? Did you start by doing that? Or did you realize over time that that would be useful to you uh, in your work and it would also help inform the stuff that you produced?
1: It was something that I purposefully went and decided to do because I thought that economics, we bring these very sharp tools with us, but they can, they're only helpful in some situations, And where they're not helpful, it's better rather than just using blunt force to try to do something that's not possible with them to actually find out how other disciplines approach problems. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's been incredibly fruitful. I spent more than a decade with my research focused in South Africa, where we worked with medical doctors and epidemiologists during a period when the AIDS crisis was devastating the country. The medical doctors were in there trying very hard to figure out using randomized control trials, what's the best way to encourage women who have just had a child to either breastfeed or not breastfeed if they're HIV positive, and doing it from a medical point of view, which is obviously uh, first order important. But understanding whether or not that woman could follow the advice she was given means that you're... Going to have to know something about the home in which she lives and the society in which she lives. The society bringing in the sociology part and like the economic forces to bear, bringing what I hope is kind of my skill set. My whole umbrella is how do people hold body and soul together? Uh-huh. And so some of that work is in South Africa and trying to figure out in a period where this dark cloud has come and landed on their heads, what can be done, what is being done, how effective is it? Part of that now is in the U.S., looking at how, how are we going to respond to the kind of crisis that I think we now face. But for me, it's all of a piece.
0: Sure. Why did you choose South Africa uh, initially?
1: It was um, just a change of government. I was looking for a new project and at that point it was clear that two things. One is if you brought skills and you were willing to listen you could possibly do something that would be helpful and I wanted to be helpful. So it was a very heady time to be there. I got to sit in on the discussions about how they were going to put together, for example, their child support grant for the whole country, which is kind of like saying, okay, you're sitting next to the woman who's going to come up with the entire um, social development program for children, right? Wow. And I was feeling quite jaded that there was anything I could say in Washington that would make a difference to anyone because things are so entrenched, whereas there everything was young and everything was possible. Mm -hmm. Um, So it started like that, and then it turns out I fell in love with the country. I have great co-authors there, and I think our ability to use the field sites that we developed there to try to fill in with quantifying um, what's going on in all parts, of of from the very poorest people in the rural settings to the now better-to-do middle class in the cities, was just a really exciting place t- to do it.
0: There's a few uh, kind of undercurrents that seem to run throughout your work, both in South Africa and you also base some of your work on data sets in the U.S. and in the U.K., like the Whitehall II study that tracked British career civil servants. Here's what those undercurrents are as far as I can see. One is an interest in how childhood circumstances affect adult outcomes, including pre-birth, prenatal uh, circumstances, how those affect what happens to people later in life. Another is an interest in how the safety net has consequences, not just for the people who have it, but for others. And in your most recent paper from South Africa, you find, for instance, that giving a very generous old age pension to a household makes a young person in that household more likely to move in search of work. Mm -hmm. That was really interesting. And then finally, there's defining that height can be a very useful variable. Uh, And you have a kind of a famous paper with Christina Paxson finding that the reason tall people get paid more in adulthood uh, is less to do with discrimination because you know towards short people and more to do with the fact that height tends to be a marker of cognitive ability. And as a, somebody who's average-heighted myself, I should note that that is not obviously a sweeping generalization, right? That's in the aggregate.
1: Absolutely. That was a paper where I was amazed to find out what people would write to you from their own personal email accounts pretty stunning stuff. Uh, uh, we got a lot of hate mail, possibly because the press picked it up in a very bad way, right? So we write the paper and we make what is an obvious point to our friends in developmental psychology, which is that better nourished children who are healthier in childhood are more likely to hit both their physical potential that would be their adult height and their cognitive potential because when you're getting wired up it's your brain and it's your body all at the same time so it's not that hitting your physical potential might be your physical potential might be 5.8 that's great but if you hit it then you're more likely to uh, score well on cognitive tests, which are going to carry on, you know, as it cascades down. The press picked it up as taller people are smarter (laughs) research shows, you know, and it's sort of the, oh man, that's really not what we meant. That's not. And then we got a lot of hate mail. It can't have anything to do with height. It has to do with, like, we're probably better nourished in childhood. Yeah, that's really what we said in the yeah. paper, but it, but it is a marker. From the time a child is old enough to be tested in a crib, which is something I didn't know anything about, but by nine months, if you put something in the crib, you can see whether the child recognizes it as something they've seen before or doesn't. And so from the time you can measure it in the crib all the way through adolescence, taller children on average score better on a whole battery of cognitive tests. And this happens actually before they even go to school. So explanations about the fact that, well, the taller kids are more likely to be called upon by the teacher. Well, actually, even at age two, age three, we're seeing that, which we think means that we want to get in early to help kids. And sooner is better. It's really hard to help kids at home right it's it's much easier once kids get to school but by the time they get to school a lot of the wiring has been done mm-hmm. so correlation between height at age three and height in adulthood is incredibly high does that mean you couldn't move someone to a different trajectory it's possible it doesn't happen but it's possible the same seems to be true for hitting your cognitive potential mm-hmm. if we took those kids and we actually put them all in you know a place where they got super duper pre k things going on, yes, you probably could have an effect, but we're not doing that mm-hmm. so uh as far as the the relationship between that and the new work, heights flattened out in the u s heights continue to grow in Europe, okay. So we think that it's possible also that part of what each of these birth cohorts is bringing in to the labor market is possibly poorer health and childhood and uh, you know a skill set that's not ever going to be developed quite as much.
0: And that is the end of this bonus episode. Once again, give us a call at 917-551-5012. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. Leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help people find out about us. And finally, at ft.com forward slash alphachat, you can get show notes for this and all other previous episodes. Because Amy Keen is the producer and editor of this podcast, every episode feels like a bonus episode. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition about the chat.